folks, welcome to another episode of the Wildwoods Nation podcast. In this instalment, we're turning our attention back to the scorching hot shores of Sicily in the summer of 1943, as we talk with battlefield guide Mike Peters about the glider pilot regiment during Operation Husky. So what did Lieutenant Withers decide to do? Well, he had a, he had a dilemma, uh, of course, because Withers was, was alone. There should have, there should have been um, six gliders. He was the only one. Um, two of the gliders that he didn't know, but uh, one had landed nine kilometres away, one 15 kilometres away. And um, the one that he saw crash was Major Ballinger uh, and the company headquarters. That, that was about 300 metres from the bridge when that blew up. So um, all but three men staggered out of that wreckage. The rest were killed. But Withers' hawser, flown by Staff Galpin and Sergeant Brown, which is hawser 113, uh, was carrying his platoon, 15 platoon, and they'd landed spot on, quite close to the bridge on the south bank, exactly as intended. And the Halifax crew got them where they should be. So they are one of the few gliders that actually got to the right place on uh, on that night. And he was on the ground at, um, at roughly 22.45 hours. So what would he do? He's a young 23-year-old platoon commander with his, with his platoon sergeant, gets all of his men uh, straight up to, towards the bridge. And when he realises that no one else is coming and he's on his own, he makes a, ve- a very quick uh, set of battle orders and he and the five men set off to swim the canal. And they brief the platoon sergeant at a pre-arranged signal, which is probably when his grenades are going off, that they should attack the north end while the remainder of the platoon will attack the southern end. So Withers is going to attack the southern end and the rest of the platoon the northern end. Um, so, uh, and, and the big, big thing, if you remember, I said, is that they, they think the bridge has been prepared for demolition and uh, they've got to get those charges off the bridge, clear the bridge of any Italian defenders and then take any prisoners, etc., and hold on until they're relieved. Now, what, what actually happens next is difficult to say. It's the, the, the chaos of battle in, in the darkness uh, but Withers is faced by two obstacles, uh, the canal and the river, uh, which he has to cross. And once across, he's got to work his way undetected along the north bank of the river towards um, a pillbox on the other side of the bridge, clear the bridge and, and take the bunker as well. And anyone who's been there on a battlefield study or a battlefield tour will know of the Ponte Grande restaurant and the pillbox is still there in the grounds of the restaurant. You can sit there and have lunch and look at the pillbox that Withers took. Um, so what Withers does, he does exactly that. He gets across undetected with his guys. They attack as planned. Their grenades go off and the remainder of the platoon assaults the position from the other end. The, the bridge is captured. And for the next few hours, it, it, it's quiet. The Italians who survived have run away. A few prisoners are taken. And Withers sets himself up at using the pillbox as a headquarters uh, until down the road comes a single lorry load of Italians who are ignorant of the presence of the airborne forces and drive up to the bridge. Uh, they're all killed in, uh, in, with brain gun fire and machine guns, etc., by Withers' platoon. And that's about um, 0400. And about, around about 0430, the Italians begin to react. And um, by sunrise, they're, 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 they're starting to edge forward. But around the bridge, they've also had some reinforcements. Those that have survived the landings and scattered all over the Italian countryside all around Sicily have moved towards the bridge and made their way to their objective. And the force around the bridge is now about seven officers and 80 men. 
mainly South Staffords, a few Borderers, some uh, Sappers, and of course the Glider pilots. And the, the, thankfully for Withers, uh, a Lieutenant Colonel has arrived, so he can hand over command and responsibility for the bridge. And that's Lieutenant Colonel Walsh, who's from the Glider Pilot Regiment. They don't have a lot of weapons because a lot of that kit's been lost in the in the gliders and, and scattered with the landings. The heaviest weapons they've managed to, to get to the bridge is a single three-inch mortar with just a few high-explosive rounds, a two-inch mortar and four brens. So by daylight, the Italians are well and truly aware of what's happening at the bridge, that the fact that they've lost this vital bridge and they're determined to take it back. Up from zero eight hundred hours, uh, they began to shell the bridge with mortar fire and artillery fire. And this improves in accuracy as time goes by. The Italians get observation posts set up and start to range in on the beleaguered British infantry. And they're edging forward quite slowly and tentatively uh, with some armoured cars in support uh, and quite bravely in places. These are some of these are regular Italian troops. Um, and the battle goes on throughout the course of the day. Uh, until about 15.30, when due to casualties and basically they've run out of ammunition and they're totally surrounded, um, the uh, 15 or so people are still able to fight out of the total force of 80 and the officers are forced to lay down their arms. Some of them escape along the canal towards the coastline and, and make a last stand on the little narrow island which is between the canal and the river. But, you know, you might think all is lost, but they hold, they'd held that, that vital bridge for just long enough because within 30 minutes, the, the spearhead of the 8th Army arrives and it's the 2nd Royal Scots Fusiliers of the 17th Infantry Brigade of the 5th Division who've motored up from the bridge of Fontaine Bianchi and they, they arrive with a spearhead of Bren carriers and overwhelm the Italians on the bridge and release the prisoners and find the whole area is littered with uh, Italian dead. So quite a spectacular coup de main operation and the bridge is in British hands again and you know that this is well before uh, Deadstick and, and Pegasus Bridge so I think it's worthy of, of note obviously. Uh, when Montgomery comes up from the beaches a few days later he meets uh, Lieutenant Withers, Len Leonard Withers and he tells him to his face that he saved the 8th Army seven days and a lot of casualties, potentially thousands of casualties and uh, Withers is given an immediate military cross although he had been recommended for the DSO, uh, but he was thought to be too young to receive the DSO, so it's a military cross for him. And he, he survives Opusky and will appear and will appear later um, with the South Staffords on Upmarket Garden, which will serve, and he, he survives that. He survived the war and he died very recently. Given what happens uh, in terms of Operation Labrook and the confusion between the tugs and the gliders, was there any form of bad blood between the British glider pilots and American air crews that followed this? Yeah, there was. And in fact, uh, Shan Hackett, who is uh, the brigade commander of the reserve brigade, uh, when, when the stragglers come in from all over the Mediterranean, because those that go down in the sea are picked up by ships and they don't take them to Sicily or back uh, to North Africa. They go wherever they're going to go. So glider pilots and surviving uh, first air landing brigade personnel are all over the Med and being brought back. Uh, to uh, Shan Hackett prior to the landings in Italy and some of them are up for blood because they they believe they've been abandoned and uh, by the American transport crews uh, and we've got to remember that some of the pilots a small number of pilots on the operation the glider pilots were American glider pilots who'd volunteered to make up the numbers and they they bore testimony as well to the what they saw as cowardice of some of the uh, American air crew who were flying the C-47s so Hackett uh, 
gated all of the glider pilots and uh, wouldn't let them out because the word got out that the Americans were, being, were receiving medals for their, their exploits and that didn't go down very well. But it's, it's, it's not really a fair criticism. They were flying unmodified aircraft, uh, being asked to fly on a combat mission in a role they'd never really trained for uh, against intense anti-aircraft fire and uh, not, enough, not enough navigators, not enough navigation aids, etc., Okay, some of them did turn back deliberately, and that happens again later in the operation. But um, we have to give them. Uh, to be fair, you know, uh, Normandy and Arnhem, it's the same crews who fly very well and press on through the flat. But this is their first ever operation, and they're being fired at from the ground, and they've been told not to cross the coastline. So they're totally unprepared for it. But yes, in answer to your original question, there was bad blood, and it did go on for some time. And in fact, um, Eisenhower listed it amongst one of his biggest concerns was the lack of experience and the combat readiness of these transport crews because they didn't just tow gliders or drop paratroopers. They were being used to fly casualties, to fly supplies, to fly VIPs. They were multitasked and uh, it was very difficult to hone their skills specifically for this job. So it was a big ask on that day. Uh, and if we look at the operation, you know, 147 gliders left Tunisia 69 of that total landed in the sea and the uh, 252 men were drowned and you know the gliders of the divisional commander the brigade commander the CEO of the South Staffords all went into the sea including Chatterton himself uh, most survived and Pip Hicks who would go on to be the brigade commander at Arnhem as well um, two gliders were shot down and 10 turned back which is sort of answers the charge of you know, cowardice, except 10 turned back to Tunisia, but just 59 landed on Sicily, but they were scattered over a 25 mile wide area. Only of that total of 147, only 12 gliders landed near their assigned landing zones. And um, uh, it's very difficult to, to justify that and say, you know, that, that was effective. Uh, many of them were miles away. And, and one of the interesting stories is that, of course, one of the pilots who landed furthest away from the landing zone was one Jim Walwork, who we all associate now with pinpoint accuracy at Pegasus Bridge. And he landed a long, long way from his land, landing zone. There was an interesting incident, obviously linking into what we just discussed, um, that occurs later on with Colonel Alistair Pearson, which kind of illustrates that tension between the British airborne forces and I guess also glider pilots and their American air crews, wasn't there? Yes, um, uh, later on in Opfustian, um, Alistair Pearson is CEO of one of the parachute battalions and uh, they're briefed up to go on, on Fustian, which is a, a further up along the, the Catania Plain, again to seize bridges to allow um, the armour to, to push north through Catania and up to uh, Messina. And Pearson is in the back of his aircraft, relatively happy that things are going as they should be. He looks out of the window and, and then the door uh, and realises that Mount Etna is on the wrong side of the aircraft. So therefore, his aircraft is flying away from Sicily, not towards the drop zone. And Pearson is concerned, obviously, immediately uh, strips off his parachute and his oversmock and his helmet and fights his way through all his fully laden troops to the cockpit. When he gets to the cockpit and opens the door of the, the Dakota cockpit, he sees that uh, one of the pilots has got his head in his hands and is, is in, in total shock and uh, uh, meltdown. 
and the other pilot is flying the aircraft. He looks through the front of the cockpit, out through the, the uh, perspection, can see the flak streaming up from the ground and a couple of burning Dakotas, one on the ground, crashed already. And he realises that all is not well. Uh, he asks the pilot what's happening, and the US pilot says that uh, it's too too intense to go on, there's too much anti-aircraft fire, and he's turning around heading back to Tunisia. There's obviously... Uh, Pearson has a mission to do, and this is a six foot four Glaswegian. You know, he's he's not a small paratrooper by any stretch of imagination. Has a reputation for being a disciplinarian, and he he says, "No, you will turn around. We have a mission to do. You will fly through the flak, and you will drop my stick of paratroopers where they should be with my battalion." Uh, there's an argument. He said they can't go on. Um, Pearson then draws his pistol, points it at the American co-pilot, and says to the pilot that if he doesn't turn the aircraft around, that he will shoot the co-pilot, and then he will shoot the pilot. The American in disbelief says, "You wouldn't do that. You know, who's going to land this thing?" And this is documented. This has been mentioned, recounted by a number of people. Pearson says, "We're paratroopers. We don't need to land. We can jump out." And one of the guys in my stick at the back is a is a grounded Royal Air Force pilot. I think we'll manage without you if we need to. So the American turns the aircraft around and flies on and takes Pearson onto the drop zone, and his uh, his stick make make the drop. So that sort of gives you an idea of the kind of friction that would have been post-operational with the between the British airborne and uh, landing troops and the, uh, the US transport command pilots. Turning away from that, um, with the initial landings taking place on the 9th and 10th of July, how did the experiences of the British 8th Army on the right flank and the US 7th Army on the left differ during those opening few days in trying to establish a secure beachhead on the island? Oh, very, very different experiences. It's, it's a good, it's a good question. They, uh, the British, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they land on a pose, but they, they meet less resistance. And uh, the, uh, the Americans land over by the port of the oil town of Jella, uh, which is where um, Patton will land his, his army, and they meet uh, stiff resistance from both the Germans and the, the, uh, the Italians. One of the, it's called the Italian mobile columns are over on that side, and the, and the weight of the German defensive forces are on that side so um there are a number of counterattacks. thankfully for the americans um they're not coordinated between the italians and the germans they don't get it right uh the herman goring division doesn't perform as well as it as it could do and they don't integrate they, they've got tiger tanks they've got tiger mark ones and there are a couple of instances where the the germans are almost on the beach and are about to drive the, the uh, u.s forces back into the sea and it's only by intervention of uh the naval gunfire and the rear rear echelon troops, the cooks and bottle washers who are armed and pushed to the front line, etc., and anti-tank guns being brought into some pretty desperate fighting on the American flank that they hang on to it uh, and stay ashore. The Brits, on the other hand, uh, aside from the, the problems they had with the airborne landings, get ashore uh, almost unmolested, uh, a few air raids and some intermittent resistance but the uh, the coastline coastal divisions in their in their in their way crumble quite quickly. With the Fustian operation only a few days following Labrook, we see another airborne operation to capture and hold key bridges and positions nearby in advance of Monty's advance. How did this go by comparison to Labrook, and have many of those lessons been applied and learnt? There really wasn't a lot of time to uh, to adapt, and one was a parachute operation, and one was a glider. There were a few gliders involved in Fustian as, as second wave, bringing in the anti tank guns for um, uh, for the parachute brigade. But this was again 
another first. This was um, the first time we put a proper full-blown brigade drop against an objective with a reinforcement wave of gliders. Uh, and um, similar problems with Transport Command, similar problems with um, navigational uh, challenges with the with the Transport Command aircrew and some high winds. Um, and Fustian, as, as it was codenamed, uh, had, had originally had also included 2nd Parachute Brigade and um, but to drop near Augusta, but that was overrun by 50th Infantry Division, who would go on to serve at Normandy. So Fustian was then reduced from a two-brigade op operation to a single brigade, and that would be 1st Parachute Brigade. He would jump with the objective of Ponte Primasole, the Primasole Bridge. So that operation uh, was to drop on the plane of Catania, and um, it was another airborne fiasco uh, four days into the campaign and uh, had all the elements that you would see later in Market Garden uh, of parachute troops uh, dropping to seize key points and bridges and armour chasing along the corridor to, to, to reach a distant objective. Um, so the one parachute brigade plan was, was relatively simple uh, if the navigation had been up to speed. Uh, first battalion dropping close to the bridge on two separate drop zones, one north and one south named uh, Johnny 1 and Johnny 2. Uh, two para dropping on the high ground to the south of the drop zone at DZ3 with the, with the uh, task of blocking any reinforcement or counterattack of the bridge. Three para, meanwhile, dropping to the northwest on DZ4. And then 19 hawser gliders coming in later onto landing zones 7 and 8, bringing in the brigade's anti-tank guns and artillery. Now, there were a number of delays. Uh, the execution was delayed by 24 hours. Uh, and uh, but then launched on the night of 13th of July, and then we get the, one of the things that's talked about a lot in Sicily is fratricide, friendly fire from naval fire as the uh, air armada passes overhead. This caused havoc, and uh, so 145 aircraft, 126 of them were carrying paratroopers, and the remainder were towing horses were dispersed all over the island. 14 were lost, and. Uh, 30 aircraft dropped their loads more or less near the correct drop zones and four gliders managed to get in near the, the correct landing zones. Some paratroopers were dropped uh, over 20 miles away and they, if we look at um, three para, they summarised their experience quite succinctly in, uh, in the war diary and it says this, um, 2300 hours red light, green light, we float down into a world of searchlights, tracer bullets and burning cornstalks. Uh, 23-20, 3rd Battalion consisted of the CO, his Batman, the RSM, and his Batman, Intelligence Sergeant and one private. We all realised we're on the wrong drop zone and no sign of the rest of the battalion. So that, uh, if we look at it overall, 1,856 officers with one parade uh, brigade had departed in North Africa. And by the time daylight came and the dust had settled, 295 made it to the bridge. And up pops one of the big characters of World War II. You know, many people think refer to him as the best battalion commander of World War II, and that's Johnny Frost, Colonel John Frost, who's in command of two power. Uh, and he gets on the ground with his headquarters and most of A Company. Uh, and by by zero, 100 hours, he's gathered 112 men and he's set out for his three objectives, the Johnny features, as he'd, as he'd nicknamed them. Johnny 1, 2, and 3. He finds a brigade commander, Lathbury, General Gerald Lathbury, who's uh, uh, 37 that day. Uh, and they hear firing at the bridge, and they assume it's one power. 
and, and they've been successful. And, and so Lathbury, thinking the bridge has been taken, orders two power to stick to the original plan and operate as a blocking force. Uh, but that was the least of the brigade's problem because uh, as they, as the brigade is rallying and trying to sort itself out, uh, they were they were encountering some Italians. Uh, uh, and Frost says they were moving about in the dark, looking for someone to surrender to. Uh, and some had used their weapons briefly, but on the whole, most of them were surrendering, carrying suitcases. And a lot of British accounts uh, deride the Italians, saying, "Oh yeah, they were so." eager to surrender their, their bags packed and they were, had suitcases. Well, that's because they had no webbing. The Italians were so low on equipment that most of the guys had no, had a suitcase for their equipment and that's why they were carrying them. It wasn't any lack of willingness to fight. They just That's what they had. But what really upset the apple cart was pretty soon they started to encounter uh, some serious opposition and very quickly they realised it was very serious because these were German airborne troops, German Fallschirmjäger, and they were from the 1st Parachute Machine Gun Battalion, which had dropped, also dropped on the island on the 12th of July. And it's only by a twist of fate that um, the, the Brits and the Germans didn't drop on top of each other because the British drop had been delayed by 24 hours, not knowing that the German theatre reserve of Falschimega being brought in from the south of France had selected exactly the same um, drop zones. So how did this impact the battle, and how did events unfold? Well, chaos, as you, as you can imagine from what I've just described. Uh, lots of Italian uh, Italians running around trying to surrender. Lots of very determined and very effective fire from the Falschimjäger, and, of course, the British trying to rally and, and meet fine comrades and, and find their weapons containers. Imagine yourself in the middle of all that. But the bridge was now at least in British hands. Captain Ran of one para. With, with about 50 powers, had seized the bridge at around 0200. The Italian guard force had fled in panic when one of the hawsers had actually crashed into the bridge. Uh, Royal engineers had quickly uh, got, around, got around the demolition charges and disabled them uh, just before dawn. And then at that point at dawn, Alistair Pearson, who's made his drop, has rallied some of his guys and uh, has arrived at the bridge. He had about 120 of his own men and uh, two platoons from three para and three six pounders and they're all gathered around the bridge and they've managed to pick up uh, captured italian and german weapons and turn those around and use them against the opposition lathbury legs lathbury as he was nicknamed arrived at the bridge at around 0500 and as he walked across to the north bank he was wounded by a grenade lobbed by a german truck driver who had been carrying on Towing, whilst towing an 88, so you've got to admire the German fighting spirit there. He's towing an 88mm behind the truck and he still finds time to throw a, a stick grenade and end, uh, injure the uh, British Brigade commander. And then the first serious German attempt to regain the bridge is launched at about 0630 on the morning of the 14th and that's preceded with a mortar bombardment. Uh, concentrated fire from German 81mm mortars who, who uh, are very accurate and have deadly effect on the defenders. Uh, from Johnny 3, uh, German machine gun fire opens up on 2 power and by 08.30, two hours later, Johnny Frost has got his own problems and he describes it uh, in his diary as it was apparent that we were under machine gun fire from three sides and the enemy were closing in on us not in very great strength, but with heavy firepower and considerable skill. So quite mobile, quite aggressive, as you would expect from airborne troops. 
So Frost has got a problem now. His men are starting to run low on ammunition. So he has to reduce his perimeter on the Johnnies. And he definitely, probably, well, no, definitely would not have been able to hold off a serious German counterattack had it not been for Captain Via Hodge, who was his, his furious forward observation officer, who, after several attempts on the wireless, manages to get hold of HMS Newfoundland, a six-inch gun cruiser offshore, and called down naval gunfire support. And Frost said, almost immediately, the high-velocity medicine began to arrive with a suddenness and efficiency that completely turned the scales. So that naval gunfire saves the day and two power cling on to their position, low ammunition, almost surrounded, but they've got that, that lifeline thrown to them by, by Newfoundland. Uh, and that's the only comms that Frost's got. He can't talk to anyone else until much later in the battle. And he's very critical later uh, after the war about the lack of effort, as he saw it at the time, of 8th Army to try and contact them and find out what was going on. And we've got to remember this is the first time we've used major uh, major numbers of airborne troops in a, in a concentrated fashion. So this is all new to everybody. Uh, but he said, you know, and there were no, no reconnaissance aircraft in front of the uh, advancing 8th Army. So no Osters, no AOP Osters, no no Spitfire, photo recce or anything like that coming forward to see what situation is, so to see if they need help. Uh, and the situation continues to to deteriorate for the what's left of those three power battalions. And um, classic airborne warfare, they've been dropped, they've not been relieved, they're running out of ammunition, low on water, low on rations, and the enemy is increasing in strength because they know where they are, they're fixed. Casualties begin to mount, and Frost has already lost 42 killed in action. And from early in the afternoon, the German Falschmjäger increased uh, the level of their attacks and the intensity. And they're coming in from the north. And um, there being Captain Franz uh, Stangenberg of the Falschmjäger had collected the divisional signal company of 150. And then from Catania Airfield, he gets uh, 200 cooks and um, supply troops, forms them into an ad hoc, ad hoc battle group, which the Germans are very good, of, good at, brings up some assault guns, some artillery, and they, they raise the, raise the uh, intensity of the attacks and much more determined attacks begin to push in towards uh, Lathbury's perimeter around the bridge. And so he's, got, he's being attacked from the north. Um, the signal company are attacking him from the east. And then the Germans realise that they're fighting the infamous Red, Red Devils, who they've come across before in Tunisia. And uh, the war diary for the Germans says, uh, says this, uh, now it was clear the British had air-landed, and we were involved with colleagues. Really a pity that one had to fight such spirited types so similar to our own German paratroopers. And there are a number of instances in the, in the darkness where you would think that the uh, a lot of the uh, British paratroops, without heavy weapons, hanging from trees, etc., would have been uh, shot out of hand by, by uh, the Falschenegger when they found them. But when they saw them in the darkness uh, and saw that they had similar helmets, similar gear, and realised that they were fellow paratroopers, they, they spared their lives and took them prisoner. And there are many instances of that uh, through the battle. So had uh, so first parachute brigade clung on and waited for the 50th Division, and with no news from the south, Lathbury realised that uh, his position north of the bridge particularly was, was hopeless, and he ordered Pearson's command to cons consolidate a defence on the south side, so they pulled back, abandoned the northern edge of the bridge. And no sooner had they set that up than an 88 was brought forward and began to, to shell the position with pinpoint accuracy. And by 1830, the bridge was given up. 
grudgingly, I have to say. But by this time, convinced that 2nd Battalion had also been forced off the, uh, the high ground, Lathbury directed those who could walk or be carried to make their way as best they could to the south and evade capture. And something of a cat-and-mouse game ensued as isolated British powers attempted to extract themselves and evade capture and to not be caught by the, the Falschermjäger. One British paratrooper hiding in some, in some scrub became increasingly alarmed when a German got closer and closer, searching intently and looking at the ground as he came ever nearer. The, the British paratrooper had a stain gun, but he was loath to use it, loath to use it because he thought it would attract the attention of the Germans in the immediate area. So when the German finally parted the scrub and, spot, and spotted him, all he said was, oh, sorry to bother you, Tommy. Have you seen my Schmeiser? He was looking for his weapon. He dropped it. And because of a fellow paralysis, he didn't shoot. Neither of them shot each other. And they, they just ignored each other while this German paratrooper looked around for his MP40. But what was actually happening was, in fact, Frost was still holding on to the high ground. And, had, and more stragglers had joined there. And um, he got rid of his... Uh, 500, he'd taken 500 Italian prisoners and he got rid of them, sent them out of the perimeter for the night, telling them to make sure they reported back to him at first light in the morning. So he got them out of his way and told them to come back to him in the morning. And in actual fact, uh, one power brigade had actually done their job because at 1930, Frost watched as a troop of Shermans from 44 RTR rumbled up from the south and a company of six battalion Dunright infantry following up uh, on foot from uh, 50th Division, and they'd broken through at Lentini, crossed over the Malati Bridge, taken by three commando, and had finally reached the Sumeto River, where one power brigade were. But they had marched 20 miles in the heat of the day, without any transport, and were in no condition to force a crossing. It might have been possible to make a rushed attack across. The Germans certainly expected it, but it took a number of hours for the rest of the 151st Brigade, which was all done by infantry battalions, to close up and reconstitute. They've been marching practically non-stop and are no fit state to fight as yet. We've obviously talked a lot about the British aspect of the airborne invasion and the airborne operations that went on. But obviously, from the American perspective, this was a, a real first encounter, an inaugural baptism of fire for Gavin's 82nd Airborne with Operation Husky 1 and 2. Uh, how did these operations fare by comparison to their British counterparts? Uh, the Americans had an even tougher time. Um, they had the same problems with uh, the Transport Command. Uh, they'd given up their, their gliders for, to the British. They had no heavy lift, so it was purely a parachute operation. And both uh, operations were uh, victims of fratricide, despite the second time uh, the naval commanders being told what time or what heading they would come on be coming in and that um, they should not open fire with anti-aircraft guns. But they were, the problem was that the Germans were mounting uh, attacks on the shipping at the same time. So it was very difficult to differ differentiate between approaching aircraft and the, the uh, fire control orders were devolved down to the commanders of individual ships. So all it took was one twitchy anti-aircraft gunner to think that uh, a C-47 was a Ju-88, uh, open fire, and then that ship would open fire, and then the rest of the ships around would open fire, and that's exactly what happened. So they lost a lot of aircraft. The American drop was scattered even wide, more widely than the uh, the British drop. But uh, rather like later in Normandy, the paratroopers did what they were trained to do, rallied into small groups or even individual soldiers made off the way and attacked the nearest thing they could find. So took on individual pillboxes, uh, observation posts, cut telephone wires, 
blue railway lines, uh, attack bridges, and uh, that resulted in uh, a whole series of reports scattered across the island coming into the Italian 6th Army Command Post. And it was very difficult for uh, the uh, Italians and Germans to, to actually decide exactly where the main effort was for 82nd Airborne and how large, the, critically how large the landing was. So it had, a, it had an effect and it would, it would, it would have an effect on, on American thinking as well. Gavin was, was quite shocked by how badly it had gone. Uh, and uh, he and the divisional commander set about righting those wrongs. And one of the things that comes out of the uh, that problem of fratricide for both the British and the Americans is invasion stripes that we'll see uh, on the Normandy operation, the white stripes on the aircraft, to try and make them more easily identifiable to uh, anti-aircraft gunners and, and uh, allied fighter aircraft. There was a constant rivalry at the very top between Patton and Monty. But what impact was there by Alexander's decision to change the front of the British 8th Army into the US 7th original zone of operation? What sort of ramifications did this have? Well, it, 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 overall, not a huge effect. But at the time, it does cause friction, particularly with Bradley, whose, whose troops are, are ordered to move it. And it's, it's down to Alexander. You know, he, he's overall commander. We tend to talk about Patton and Montgomery and... Alexander is in charge of these guys. He's the Army Group commander, and uh, Montgomery doesn't see it as an issue. He, he can't. He's can't because of Ponte Primasoli. He can't break through up the Catania plane up his, his dash up, the, up along the handrailing the coast. Isn't going to work, and he's pushing ever ever further to the left because the roads are so sparse and and uh, austere in Sicily that they're all choke points. So. What seemed like a good idea at the time for the 8th Army to push up the coast on the right-hand side with uh, the US out on the uh, on the western side, uh, you know, basically handing off any Italian or Italian, uh, German opposition, isn't working. Montgomery thinks he needs more battle space, so he said, I need that road, and pushes out. That's uh, called the Vicini incident. And um, uh, it causes a lot of confusion for the Americans. The Americans have to basically sidestep on a grand scale left across the island to allow Montgomery to push on. Montgomery is, at that time, the main effort. And it does cause friction, it does cause bad blood, but Patton, at that stage, accepts it and uh, gets on with it, follows orders and allows it to happen. Thanks for listening. We hope you found this episode of interest. Stay tuned. Coming up shortly will be the third and final instalment of this series, looking at the Glider Pilot Regiment in Sicily as part of Operation Husky. 